invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Titus, to Titus chapter 1. As you know, we are going through the qualifications for the office of elder, pastor in the church, and the two chapters that especially deal with that are Titus 1 and uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we've spent quite a bit of time in Titus chapter 1. We're going to be looking at it at the beginning, but then mostly turning later on to 1 Timothy chapter 3 this afternoon. But before we begin, let's pray for the help of God. Most blessed and glorious God, we do thank you and we do praise you that you indeed send forth laborers into the harvest field and you do not send them alone. But as the Lord Jesus promised to his disciples that he would be there, where he would come, they would go. And we would pray even now that your presence would be with us as we open up your word. And we pray that even as we have prayed this missionary song together, pleading that all around the world we would be able to send missionaries and those that would bring the glad tidings of the gospel to sinners in far-off lands, We now know, O Lord, more than ever that our country has turned its back upon you, and it is a mission field. It is in need of of missionaries, of preachers, and of heralds of the gospel of our Savior. And we pray that you would raise up not just men in this congregation, but also all around this country, those that would be faithful unto you, even to death. We pray that you would be pleased even now to help us to Follow your word as we would seek your will concerning this man that you have raised up. We do believe in our midst. We do pray for your direction even now as we open up your word. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. John Newton, who was the 18th century preacher that penned perhaps the most famous hymn of all, at least in America, the hymn Amazing Grace, He set this axiom forth about the ministry. None but he who made the world can make a minister of the gospel. And then he went on to say that if a young man has the talents and the training and the hard work that he would put himself into it, those things could make him a scholar or maybe a philosopher or maybe an orator. But a true minister He needs to have certain principles and motives and feelings and aims and abilities that no amount of diligence can acquire and no amount of instruction can impart. The qualities of a true minister of God are given from above. None but he who made the world can make a minister of the gospel. This is the reason why pastors are said to be a gift from Christ. In Ephesians 4.11, we read, He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, or some pastor-teachers. It is the risen Lord that gave pastor-teachers to the church as a gift. This is also the reason why in Acts 20 and verse 28, Paul said to the Ephesians, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Not that I made you overseers, the Holy Spirit made you overseers. It's not the man himself that makes himself a pastor. It's not the seminary that trains him up. It's not even the church that takes a vote on that man. The church does not make a pastor. It is God who makes a pastor. It's the church's duty simply to recognize those whom God has made pastors and given as gifts to the church. For over a year, we have, as a church, been waiting on God to show us as a congregation whether he has indeed raised up Drew Grumbles to serve as an elder in his church here. And how can we recognize whether or not Christ has indeed given us this man as a gift? Well, we have to go to the word of God to see what this gift looks like. And the primary way in which the word of God has set forth the features by which this gift might be recognized is not only what we've looked at the descriptions the Bible gives us, but primarily, and this is why we reserve it for the last, 
is the list of qualifications that we find in Titus 1 and in 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's as if God asked, do you want to know what this gift looks like? Go to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, and there you will see its features clearly described. Well, as we have preached now two sermons on the qualifications for the ministry, those sermons have been gathered underneath just one heading. There is to be, and you notice this as your outlines by way of review, an irreproachable life. And this involves an irreproachable home life and an exemplary personal character. And we went over the many personal traits that need to be characteristic of a man before he would be recognized as an elder. And I won't go over all of those traits again. But what I want to do is come now to our final points, our final main points, and the second main point has to do with the fact that there needs to be in him whole-souled commitment to the truth. He needs to be orthodox in his doctrine. And this is described in Titus chapter 1, beginning with verse 9. He is to be holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. For there are many unsubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching the things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. Paul says that an elder must be committed to the faithful word, or as the English standard puts it, the trustworthy word, a word that is trustworthy and reliable. As the New American brings out the meaning of the original, I think perhaps the best, he is to hold that faithful word which is according to the teaching. And Paul has a clearly defined body of teaching in his mind. He calls it the teaching. He's speaking here of the teaching of Christ and the apostles. In Romans 6, 17, he speaks of that, and here's a very significant phrase, that form of doctrine or teaching into which the Romans were delivered. It's a clearly defined form. It's a word that describes something that is, is a mold or a type. And that which is conformed to it fits that mold. And these doctrines have been received from Christ and the apostles. And these doctrines have been entrusted to pastors for safekeeping. And this is something that's emphasized in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. I'd like to just read those verses. We read in those words, Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you or entrusted to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And then in chapter 2 and verse 2, And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. They have been heard from the apostle. And they are entrusted to Timothy, and he in turn is to entrust these doctrines to the safekeeping of faithful men. And they will in turn entrust these truths to others that will follow them. This is how ministers are to be trained. In Titus 1 and verse 9, coming back to what we read to begin with, this body of doctrine is called the faithful or the trustworthy word. Because it has been faithfully handed down to Timothy from the apostle. And it is something in which we can put our trust. It's trustworthy. These same doctrines have been handed down to us from the word of God through faithful teachers. And they have communicated the doctrines that are in God's word. And that alone. And all of this is to say that an elder must be orthodox in his doctrinal beliefs. And Paul's charge to Titus in chapter 2 and verse 1. It must be taken seriously by every minister of the gospel. Speak the things, he says, which are proper for sound doctrine. And again in chapter 2 and verse 7, his doctrine is to be uncorrupted and untainted. And why is this so critical? It's because error, dear people, is dangerous and error is damnable. It leads people to hell. 
Peter speaks of those who secretly bring in destructive heresies, which bring on themselves swift destruction. And his heresy brings damnation on the preacher. When it's entertained and embraced by its hearers, his hearers it brings the same upon them. In 2 Timothy 2.17, Paul speaks of the heresy of Hymenaeus and Philetus about the resurrection. They denied the resurrection, the bodily resurrection. He says this heresy, it will spread like cancer. And that is a deadly disease, obviously. We all know how deadly cancer is. Now, because of the momentous issues at stake, coming back now to Titus chapter 1 and verse 9, In this verse, Paul insists that an elder must be one who holds fast the faithful word or holds firm, as it's in the ESV, the faithful word. He says that such a one must cling to or he must hold on to with all of his might the trustworthy doctrines delivered to him. The word that he uses in this place is a word that describes holding on to something with a tenacious grip. It's like playing tug-of-war where you've got opposition pulling against you and you've got to hold on to it with all your strength if you're to win. It's the image conveyed of a man holding on to something with all of his strength. And the language that Paul uses, it implies that the man you see not only has the truth in his head, but he has a hold on it. It has a hold on him. It has a hold on his heart. His affections have been touched by these truths. And because it has a grip upon him, he has a grip upon it. He will let the truth go because he loves the truth. He refuses to give it up because it's precious to him. In 2 Thessalonians 2.10, Paul speaks of those who have been deceived. And he says they will be condemned. And here I quote, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Now, Paul also says that demons believe and tremble. And that's actually James that says that. The demons, they have an intellectual grasp on the truth. They are probably more greater theologians in many ways than any of us in this room. They know things because they're brilliant. In a sense, demons are orthodox intellectually. And in fact, they believe in hell so much that they tremble when it's mentioned again in their hearing. Many other people don't tremble when they hear about hell. Demons do. And in the same way apostates, they once had the truth in their minds. But neither demons nor apostates hold the truth. And why don't they hold the truth? Why don't they have a tenacious grasp upon it? It's because they don't love the truth. And why don't they love it? It's because they've never seen the glory of it. They've never been filled with delight because of it. They've never been willing to lay their lives down for it. And because they've never truly had any love for it, they don't hold on to it. And when push comes to shove, they let it go. But an elder must be a person, you see, that would never allow the truth to be wrestled away from him. No threats, no favors, no powers, no subtlety. None of these things can force him to relinquish his hold. He must hold fast to the sound doctrine. Today the pressure to let go of the truths of God's word is enormous. The pastor is bombarded on all sides by subtle and not too subtle influences contrary to the truth. He reads many books and inevitably he comes across errors and heresies in those books. And usually these heresies are presented in a most plausible manner. And add to this the pressures that come from the philosophy of pluralism. And here I'm not talking about the kind of pluralism that allows freedom of religion, but I'm talking about the idea that all religions are correct. We're not to have any one religion. We're we're to look upon them as being equally valid. And the implication is that if all religions are equally true, you shouldn't be concerned about holding on to any one religion. Shouldn't be too obnoxious about it, you see. That's the way they view us for being, they they view us as being obstinate and, and clinging to the truth. But if you don't really believe that anyone is true, you see, it's all pluralistic, then you won't hold on to it. G. E. Lessing, the 18th century German philosopher and critic, he argued for this kind of pluralism with a story. 
He said a father had a magic ring that he was duty-bound to bequeath to his sons, and he could only give it to one of his three sons when he died. And not wanting to be accused of any favoritism, what he did is he made two imitation rings. Before his death, he gave each of his three sons one ring. Each one thought that his ring was the real one, and so an argument took place between them as to which one was the owner of the genuine ring. And so the three sons, they went to Nathan the wise, and he told them, let each think that his own is the true one, but do not try to persuade the others. And so the, the, the moral of his story, you see, is that nobody can be sure what religion is true, so don't push your ideas upon anybody else, and don't be too worried about the truth. But a faithful pastor, he refuses to swallow such a lie. God cannot lie, as Paul declares in verse 2. God doesn't make imitation rings. He's given his son and the one true gospel to the whole world and the resurrection of Christ and the transformation of millions of lives testify to the reality of that truth. So the elder must cling to the gospel with a life and death grip and he won't let the church be robbed of it by fashionable arguments. He refuses to drag people down the woke road to hell, the broad road that leads to destruction. Now, no ordination council can truly determine whether a man meets his qualification. It's traditional in different denominations to have different pastors come and ask hard theological questions of a man, and they call it an ordination council. And yet, uh, we've been reluctant to pattern our process in the same way because the great emphasis is upon character that needs to be reserved, be observed over a period of time. But sound doctrine is part of the qualification. It's mentioned here. And yet, when you gather together a bunch of experts and they ask questions, they can't see into the heart of a man. Only when a man has walked in and out among the people for a church for some time are they able to see whether he loves the truth, whether he's committed to the truth, whether they think he's going to let it go. And his motto is, buy the truth and do not sell it. Proverbs 23, 23, one of my favorite Proverbs. In Titus chapter 1 and verse 9, Paul goes on in the last half of the verse to give us two reasons why an elder must, not, must have a, this kind of a tenacious grip on the truth. And here I think the New American gives us the best translation. It is that he may be able both to exhort in the sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. The ministry of the man of God's twofold. It's exhortation and refutation. Exhortation is basically preaching, but it's taking the practical truth and applying it, exhorting people to do what they've been told to do. So simultaneously, he's to be building up the church, he's to be exhorting the people, and at the same time, he needs to be knocking down error. First of all, there needs to be exhortation if this man is to hold fast to the truth. Now, the word exhort, as it's used here, it means to urge the hearers to accept the doctrine and to respond to it appropriately. In essence, what exhortation is, is preaching. And it's not just the preacher's opportunity, you see, to just instruct people, their minds. That's something you can have a lecture. and that le Have a lecture, it's appropriate to have lectures in different settings. But preaching goes beyond it. It takes abstract truths and applies the truth to those they're hearing. And as this exhortation is being given, the preacher is not to just preach his own pet peeves, his little things that he, that he likes to somehow figure out a way to stick in every sermon. But rather what he preaches is to be grounded in sound doctrine. And the word sound is the word that doctors, they still use. They speak about uh, somebody that is sound in mind and limb. And referring to somebody by that phrase as being healthy. And even in this way, the doctrines of Christianity are healthy doctrines. They produce healthy Christians. And when it's rightly received, truth leads to godliness, whereas error produces sick Christians. And therefore, Paul's exhortations always grow out of sound doctrine. And the usual method that he uses, and the method in the sermons should be the same, you lay out the doctrine, and then you apply the doctrine. 
and the persuasiveness, you see, of the preacher's exhortations, they must be not just be rooted, you see, in his captivating oratory, not rooted just in his emotional outbursts, but in the faithful opening up of Scripture. He grounds what he says and what the Bible teaches. You see, he needs not to be, he mustn't be like the preacher that puts this little notation in the margin of his sermon. Weak point, shout louder. That's not his approach, you see. His passion is the natural, it naturally comes out, you see, as an expression of his heart that's been gripped by the truth. He's holding on to the truth. He loves it, and he wants his people to hold on to the truth as well. But if the truth hasn't first gripped his own heart, it will be impossible for him to bring it home to the hearts of others. But if it has mastered his soul, he won't be able to hold it back. He will be like Jeremiah, who said his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. So if because of the truth, a preacher has a burning heart, he will have burning lips. So the first reason for having this tenacious grip on the truth has to do with exhortation. But the second aspect of it is refutation. He must be able, with the faithful word, Timothy says, to refute those who contradict. This is the second aspect of his work. His sword must be double-edged. Not only must he use scripture to slay sin in the hearts of the saints, he must also slay false teaching, you see, in the mouths of those that contradict, or those that, that oppose the truth. And the word that's translated refute or convict it's used again in verse 13. There are those that subvert whole households whose mouths must be stopped, verse 11. And then about those people, he says in verse 13, he tells Titus to rebuke them sharply. Same word is used, translated rebuke. And this isn't popular for, for a preacher to do this. We like to hear encouraging sermons. Sometimes people go in and out and they, they complain. Well, I didn't feel encouraged today. And they feel like they, they, they wasted their time because they didn't get encouraged. You see, the preacher, many times, when he engages in this work of refutation, he's, a, he, he's engaging in warfare. It's a grim battle. It requires courage. This is a hard task for the preacher because even, pre, even Christians would rather be cheered up than, than warned. Combating dangerous error, it's often characterized as judgmentalism or just being negative. Shouldn't be so negative in your sermons, Pastor. Oh, yes, we should be sometimes. If we're going to hold on to the truth, we must be negative sometimes. We must expose that which is contrary to sound doctrine. If we're faithful to the souls of men, we must be watchmen. And the watchman needs to be alive to the destructive philosophies of the modern world and the dangerous errors that are springing up in the church. And how is he going to do this? How is he going to refute heresy and error? Well, he needs to be well-grounded in the truth. And it's been said that the best way to train people to spot counterfeit money is to get them to examine, to know what the, the true bill looks like. And those that know the genuine article, you see, they're best prepared to spot the false. And even so, the best preparation for refuting error is a thorough grasp of the contents and the do of the doctrines of the Bible. You, and if a man has hazy views about these things, how can he himself even detect false doctrine, much less his people that listen to him? He must have settled. He must have clear views. He must not be a beginner in the scriptures. And he must be able to communicate this issue in a way that will be persuasive to the people that hear. In his essay entitled An Able and Faithful Ministry, Samuel Miller, he said this of the gospel minister. He is to be ready on all occasions to explain the scriptures. This is his first and chief work. He is to be ready to rectify erroneous translations of sacred scripture, to reconcile seeming contradictions, to clear up real obscurities, to illustrate the force and beauty of allusions to ancient customs and manners, and in general to explain the word of God as one who has made it the object of his deep study. He is set for the defense of the gospel, 
and therefore must be qualified to answer the objections of infidels and repel the insinuations and cavils of skeptics, to detect, expose, and refute the ever-varying forms of heresy, and to stand in the breach when men ever so covertly or artfully depart from the faith once delivered to the saints. So this is the second great qualification that we look at here, a whole-souled commitment to the truth. And now I want you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3 as we come to the third main qualification, which is a proven ability to teach. First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2. We read, A bishop must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, and then at the end of the verse, apt or able to teach. Now, Bauer, Arndt, and Gingrich's Greek lexicon, it gives this translation of the word that Paul uses here, skillful in teaching. He must not only know the truth and love it and tenaciously hold on to it, as we just emphasized, but he must be able to communicate the truth to others in an understandable way. He must be able to take the truths that he has imparted to others and also to apply the needs of, to, of God's people in their various situations. And here I want to draw your attention to two aspects of this qualification, this ability to teach, this aptness to teach. First of all, I want to emphasize that this qualification, it assumes a gift to teach. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11 says he gave, that speaks about a gift, speaking of Christ, he gave some pastors and teachers. And among the spiritual gifts that are listed in Romans 12 is the gift of teaching, verse 7. And again, in 1 Corinthians 12, 28 and 29, we read, And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Are all prophets? Are all teachers, he asks. And again, Paul is speaking of the various spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to the church. And among them are teachers, or pastor teachers. And with respect to these gifts, Paul says in verse 11 of that chapter, that the Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. And among these gifts is the gift of the ability to teach. Now, most of the qualifications for the office of elder, they have to do with maturity and balance of character. That's the great emphasis of both these chapters, Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3. That's why we spent two sermons going over that, those aspects of maturity of character. But we, wouldn't, we mustn't assume that everybody that would become mature in all those ways that we've studied so far is to become an elder. There's a sense in which all those traits that we've studied so far up until this sermon, we should emulate those things. We shouldn't just say, well, the pastor, he needs to take care of his home well. I guess I don't have to. We don't say that about the, any of those, those qualifications. We seek to imitate those qualifications, even if we're not pastors. But here is a gift. And it's given by the risen, ascended Lord. It's imparted by the efficacious operation of the Spirit. And it's only those that show some evidence of possessing this gift that should be considered for the office of elder. In 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul tells Timothy that the things that he has heard, he is to commit to faithful men who will be able, in other words, who have the gift, the ability to teach others also. He shall look for those that show promise of being able to teach others also and to teach them, and they in turn will teach others. In keeping with this principle, Spurgeon, he wouldn't admit men into the pastor's college unless they had preached for two years. And he also wouldn't admit anybody that couldn't show any fruit from their labors of those two years of preaching. I think, well, not too many people would be admitted to seminaries nowadays that would have those, those two requirements. And among those things that he expected, therefore, for anybody to attend the pastor's college in London was the ability in some way to preach. And Trinity Mr. Academy that I was involved with had 
a similar standard, not quite as, as, as quite as strict, but the, anybody that applied had to submit a recording of, of, of sermon and, and a Sunday school class. And this doesn't mean, of course, that with his very first if, efforts to teach or to preach, that he has to appear in full flower and with all the finesse of somebody that's been preaching or teaching for years. Even if a man possesses the gift, it needs to be cultivated. And even such a man as Timothy, he's urged by the apostle to stir up the gift, to develop the gift that was in him, 2 Timothy 1.6. And it should also be remembered that it's not all pastors that have the same level of gift for public preaching. I remember down in Montville, one of our dear Pastor Dixon, he almost never preached or taught publicly, but he was exceedingly gifted with one-on-one teaching. And he was a tremendous blessing to the eldership in that place. And he wasn't one of the main preachers. Some people are not called to be one of the main preachers in a church. And so there are varying levels of the ability of teaching and responsibility, therefore, that will be had in the church of Christ. And in 1 Timothy 5.17, there's a distinction between those that make it their labor, their, their, their life calling to give themselves to this job, that is to prepare sermons, to teach, and to preach. And there are others that do not make that their labor or their life calling, and yet they are elders. But in evaluating these gifts, we need to recognize something, that there are differences, therefore, also not only in ability, but also preaching style. And there are some people that are sons of thunder, and with others, their earnestness, it's not manifested by shouting, but with tender pathos. And some people are more structured in their preaching, where others are more folksy. They're more willing to chase rabbits in their sermons. And there's a great, great variety, you see, in the ability of people to teach and preach that still beat this qualification. But there are two aspects that I think need to be emphasized that are be, to be expected in every case. The first has to do with mental ability. And this has to do with the aspect that has to do with the disposition and the capabilities of the mind. If you're responsible to feed God's people week after week, year after year, there's certain mental abilities that are necessary. It requires long hours, you see, in study every week. The pastor, he needs to have the ability to mine from the scriptures the teaching of other godly men, uh, and as well as scripture, as they would open up scripture. And he needs to be able to put it together in a package that will edify the people. He needs to be able to relate one doctrine to another doctrine. We read in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, something about this, this process where Paul says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Rightly dividing it up in portions and applying the word in different circumstances to the needs of the hearers. He needs to therefore have a thorough knowledge of scripture. An understanding of the interrelatedness and the self-consistency of scripture. He needs to have the ability to organize his thoughts on the subject that he's preaching about. So that it can be presented in a cohesive, organized manner in some way. You see there are some preachers that take you from Dan to Beersheba in every sermon, hitting on everything that imagine, imaginable along the way, and a half hour later you, you wonder what it was that they were trying to say. I can't remember if it was Spurgeon, one of the applicants to the college or something like that, that where somebody tried to display his preaching abilities. I think it was maybe Spurgeon, but I'm not sure about this. He says, young man, for a half hour you've been trying to get out of your head something into my head but I don't know what it was. And this can't be the case, you see, with somebody that would stand up week by week and try to preach or teach. The second aspect of this teaching or preaching gift is the facility of sanctified utterance. And it's obvious that the ability to teach requires more than just having a certain amount of gray matter. The pastor has to have the gift of public utterance. As one person put it, too many have been the victims of a brilliant man with extraordinary mental gifts, yet who could not preach his way out of a paper bag. I had seminary professors in the past that were like that. And there are some dear men who understand and love the truth, 
but they can't teach or preach without inflicting the greatest pain upon their listeners. And their presentation of the subject at hand, it leaves their hearers confused. Or if it's logically laid out, it's presented in a dry, pedantic manner that comes across flat and dull and boring, and it requires the utmost patience to hear that sermon. Christ's preaching was arresting. We don't know that he always was shouting as he preached and got dynamic in various ways, but he used ways to capture the attention. He used similes and parables to get the attention of the common people who heard him gladly. But the teaching and preaching of some men, it does little to arrest the attention of hearers. Now, one of the things that is used in the Bible to describe the ministry of somebody that's sent by Christ is that he's called an ambassador. And also, he's called a herald. And the word for herald is the word for preach. And it's used of, of, of a gospel minister in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 11. And this underscores the gift of public utterance. 2 Timothy 1.11, Paul says, I was appointed a preacher, that is a kerux, in other words, a herald. In his classic work, The Preacher's Portrait, John Stott, he says this, heralding is not the same as lecturing. A lecture is a dispassionate, objective academic. It's addressed to the mind. It seeks no result but to impart certain information and perhaps to provoke the student to further inquiry. But the herald of God comes with an urgent summons to men to repent, to lay down their arms and humbly accept the offered pardon. The word preached, therefore, is used more often in the New Testament of gospel preaching to unconverted people, whereas the word teach is used more often in the context of the minister ministering among the flock. But Paul does say, preach the word. And I think it's assumed that this means that preaching should happen in the congregation as well as, as, well as the gospel being preached to those that are lost. Well, is it not the curse then of modern church that its pulpits have been open to nice guys that don't know how to preach? There are many who are sincere, they're godly, but they don't have the gift of utterance. And this brings us to the question, what is sanctified utterance? Is it just oratory? Pagan people can sometimes cultivate that. Is it just the ability to tell stories? In Brian Borgman's book on Pastor Martin's theology of preaching, he identifies four basic elements of sanctified utterance. I'm not going to go through all four of them, but I want to mention a couple of them. And one is a natural, acquired, and cultivated ability to express one's thoughts clearly and convincingly to the average person. How can a pastor teach, comfort, exhort, or expose error if he can't be understood? How can he feed God's people with knowledge and understanding, Jeremiah 3.15? How can a preacher, he has to have the ability, you see, to get the thoughts out of his head into the heads of those that are listening. So there needs to be clarity, ability to convey truth to the minds of others. But this issue of the ability or this, this gift of utterance, it also involves a supernatural endowment of the Holy Spirit that enables someone to preach with divine unction. Now, unction is difficult to define, but there's no doubt in the preacher's mind when it happens. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, it is the Holy Spirit falling upon the preacher in a special manner. It is an access to power. It is God giving power and enablement to the preacher in order that he may do this work in a manner that lifts it up beyond the efforts and endeavors of man to a position in which the preacher becomes the channel through whom the spirit works. Some people describe this as being carried along. It's the felt power of the truth on the part of the preacher and those that are also hearing. Fresh thoughts come to his mind on the spot. Unusual fluidity of mind and speech communicates these thoughts. There's even greater intensity that comes from time to time in delivering these thoughts. There is, you see, almost like an electric current that takes place between the preacher and the congregation, an empathetic involvement. It draws the hearers in, you see, to what is being said. And Paul describes this experience as he writes to the Thessalonians when he says, our gospel did not come to you in word only. This wasn't just a dry lecture but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. 
I want to say by way of caution that this has nothing to do with the level of physical animation, the volume of somebody's voice, the amount of eloquence by which he puts it, and oftentimes the same preacher is not going to experience the same level of unction in one sermon that he does in every other sermon. And so there are varieties. And yet there is something of the fact that when somebody's been called to deliver God's word, the people know that this has come from God. Truth is coming to my mind. And it's laying hold of my conscience that I might respond to what God is saying to me today. But then also having emphasized that there is a gift to this, the gift of teaching. This is also, I need to emphasize, accompanied by grace. And here I want to read from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and following. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. The servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. Able to teach, the same phrase, apt to teach or able to teach. Patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they also may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. The same man that tenaciously clings to the truth He may seem to be somebody that's one of these hard-nosed people because he's just doggedly determined to stick to the truth. And yet at the same time, this same man is humble and gentle and loving as a teacher. Apt to teach in in this context, it brings out a contrast to somebody that always comes across whatever he's preaching about in a sharp, controversial way, always stirring up opposition and passions in the hearts of those that disagree. You read of the Lord Jesus, where he says of himself, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. He's apt to teach, learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So ministers, they ought not to think of themselves suitably dressed when they come into the pulpit until they're clothed with humility. And it bears some resemblance to that lowly, humble Jesus, even as they preach. A proud, haughty, aspiring, ambitious spirit, it's hateful to everybody. Especially it's hateful to God's people when they see it in a minister. And while there are some that are willing to follow a man with swagger, and sometimes even his church may grow, eventually the godly are turned off. Early on when I was preparing for the ministry, there was a couple volumes that made a deep impression upon me. They had to do with the autobiography of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And in a chapter on the pastor's college, he describes something that I've never forgotten. He says, one young gentleman with whose presence I was once honored has left on my mind a photograph of his exquisite self. That face of his looked like the title page of a whole volume of conceit and deceit. He sent word into my vestry one Sabbath morning that he must see me at once. I don't know if I'd have this this amount of grace. Right before I'm ready to preach, there's somebody demanding a meeting with me. His audacity admitted him. And when he was before me, he said, Sir, I want to enter your college, and I should like to enter at once. Well, sir, I said, I fear we have no room for you at present, but your case be considered. But mine is a very remarkable case, sir. You have probably never received such an application as mine before. Well, very good. We'll see about it. The secretary will give you one of the application papers and you can see me on Monday. He came back on Monday, bringing with him the questions and he answered them in the most extraordinary manner. As to books, he claimed to have read all the ancient and modern literature. And after giving an immense list, he added, and this is merely a selection, I've read most extensively in all departments. And as to his preaching, he produced the highest testimonials, but hardly thought that they would be needed as a personal interview would convince me of his ability at once. And his surprise was very great when I said, Sir, I'm obliged to tell you that I cannot receive you. Well, why not, sir? I will tell you plainly. 
You are so dreadfully clever that I could not insult you by receiving you into our college, where we have none but rather ordinary men. The president, tutors, and students are all men of moderate attainments, and you would have to condescend too much to come among us. And he looked at me very severely. He said with dignity, do you mean to say that because I am, have an unusual genius and have produced in myself a gigantic mind as is rarely seen, I am refused admittance into your college? Yes, I replied, as calmly as I could, considering the overpowering awe with which his genius inspired, for that very reason. Well then, sir, you ought to allow me a trial by my preaching abilities. Select any text that you want, or suggest any subject that you please, and here in this very room I will speak upon it or preach upon it without deliberation, and you will be surprised. No, thank you. I would rather not have the trouble listening to you. Trouble, sir? I assure you, it would be the greatest possible pleasure that you could have. I said it might be, but I felt myself unworthy of the privilege, and so I bade him farewell. Well, obviously, this is an extreme example, but it also illustrates the fact that pride turns people off in the pulpit and in all aspects of the pastor's labors. And this grace comes, this ability to preach, this aptness to teach, is must come along with humility, as Paul emphasizes, this grace of humility and gentleness, as is emphasized there in 2 Timothy chapter 2. But I want to come now to a fourth main category of thought, and this has to do with a proven ability to rule, the fourth major qualification. And here we find this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. And so if you're not there already, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. He says, verse 4, He is to be one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Now, in our studies that, in which we gave a biblical description of the elder, we saw that we diff- saw different c- comparisons. You know that a pastor is like a shepherd to a flock, and so on. And one of those comparisons that we looked at is that he is like a father in a household. And the primary concern in the verses that we just read here, what I just read now, verses four and five, it has to do with whether or not the elder is fit to rule in the church. And the best proving ground for his ability to rule, so this has to do with more with ruling and and administering the church rather than the issue of preaching. And the best proving ground is that of the home. And if a man is not married, it's important that this ability be proven in some other context, perhaps be given for some time responsibility in the church or maybe in in the workplace. Uh, we won't get into that. It's a whole other subject that uh, uh, we just don't have time to cover that issue. What if a man is not married and so on? But there is no per proving ground that is quite like that of what the pastor has to do in the church. There's so much like that more than the issue of a father in a household. Now, the meaning of the word that's translated rule, here in verse 4, one who rules his own house well, this word, it means manage, as, as New American translates it, English standard, but the basic meaning is to stand before or to rule over. And the, it, the word, it, it clearly is used to describe somebody that's exercising headship. He's standing before, he's exercising leadership. And frequently it's used in the context that applies authority. And the fact that at the end of verse 4, Paul is referring to the children that are being ruled as being in submission This implies that authority is being exercised in the home. The correlation with being able to take care of the house of God also implies at the end of verse 5 that a secondary meaning of the word is to be concerned about or to care for the flock of God. Well, how does this come out in in the home? This ability to rule well or care for the house. Well, it'll show itself in a very basic way in terms of the relationship he has with his wife. He provides for her. He exercises loving leadership over her. But what Paul focuses on here is his role or his care of his children. 
The second half of verse 4, we read that he has his children in submission with all reverence. And he keeps his children submissive. It's another translation, as is put, I think, in the ESV. Now, in the New Testament, the word that's always used to convey this idea of passively submitting, subordination, this is the idea that this word conveys, this issue of subjection or submission. Children are to be in submission. And the children that are in view are those that are still under his roof. Obviously, a child that's uh, turned away from the faith, that's outside of the house, he doesn't have any control anymore over that, that child or that son or that daughter. But it's talking about the ones that are under his roof, under his authority. And in the New King James, at the end of verse 4, it reads, having his children in submission with all reverence. Now, there's some uncertainty with whether that word reverence is to be something that's applied to the father, that he's to conduct himself with dignity, as some of the translations put it, or does it have to do with the reverence of the children in the house, the reverence to their father, uh, their dignity, uh, the conduct of the children in that home. And uh, I was tempted to go into all the arguments, pro and con, but we're, we're going to just pass by all of that. And perhaps I think that there's a deliberate uncertainty here in the original, where we can't necessarily rule it's one way or the other, the reverence of the father, or dignity of the father, or of the children. And I think that this is perhaps deliberate. It leaves us with the impression that both on the side of the father and the children, there's an atmosphere of dignity and respect. And... The children, they know that when dad speaks, he means it. And when he asserts his authority, it sticks. And this implies that the dignity in view, it begins with the father. As Hendrickson puts it, the father's authority is exercised in such a manner that the father's firmness makes it advisable for the child to obey, his wisdom makes it natural for the child to obey, and his love makes it a pleasure for the child to obey. All of this, it implies mutual respect. The father treats his children with respect and dignity. He doesn't treat them like animals that are to be beaten. He, he's in control of his emotions also. He's, he, he doesn't get all angry and, 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 and throw a fit, you see. If he is, his way isn't, he doesn't get his way. He's considerate. He's, he's fair. There's a dignity, you see, about the way which this whole issue of how he conducts himself with his children. And a father that treats these children in this way, with dignity, he will get in return their respect. And by way of contrast, a father's angry outbursts and inconsistent disciplines can lead resentment, you see. It's going to intensify rebellion. And such a man that's constantly, his house is in an uproar because he's always blasting off, you see, He's not qualified, you see, to serve as a spiritual father or spiritual leader in the church. Now, to the contrary, the relationship between the father and his children that Paul has in view is that of mutual respect, therefore. So what do you see in his home? You see an atmosphere of stability and order, a climate of peace and love. The father envisioned he's not a domineering tyrant. On the other hand, he's not an oblivious man that is only concerned about his ball game and is totally unconcerned about World War III in the next room and, and doing something about that. And so he's in control. He's, there's a firmness that's there, and yet, you see, he's not a domineering tyrant. And at times, the children may disobey him, but this will lead to loving discipline. And his firmness is joined to wisdom and love so that his children don't despise him. This is the picture that is given here. And in verse 5, Paul gives the reason for this qualification. He says in verse 5, For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? If he can't rule in this lesser sphere, how will he rule in the greater sphere of the church of God? Well, I wanted to say something more about this, but I need to move on here briefly to comment on Points number five and six. Qualification number five, main qualification, is time-tested Christian experience. We read of this in verse six, where he is not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation 
as the devil. Now the last two qualifications, number five, number six, they both refer to the devil, his tactics. And on one hand to puff the man up, on the other hand to smear his name. But here in verse six, Paul is concerned about pride that often bedevils the novice, that has not been through the school of hard knocks. Now what does Paul have in mind when he says that the elder must not be a novice? Well, the word that's translated novice in the New King James, it only occurs this one time in the New Testament. And from this word, it's the neophutos, we get this English word neophyte. It comes right from that Greek word. And a neophyte is a novice. That's why the translation novice comes out. And it literally means newly planted. And here it's used figuratively to describe somebody that's newly planted in the Christian church. In other words, a new convert. And that's why some translations say he is not to be a new convert, as we read in the ESV and the New American. This word translated newly planted, it reminds us of the times in which we planted a small tree. What do you do when you go to the nursery, you pick up a little sapling and you plant it, you put some strong sticks next to it, and you tie it around the sticks, or maybe three sticks, and kind of make sure that it, when the winds blow, it's not going to be blown over and destroyed. And it, it, it has to set out deep roots, set down deep roots, I should say, and grow a stronger trunk. It's weak, you see, at first. It's newly planted. And the eldership is not to be a place for people that are newly planted in the church, newly converted. It's not a place for beginners. And as a side, I want to just say we regard the trials of our brother that he endured in South Dakota not as a disqualification, but rather as a further evidence of maturity going through these issues. But in addition to the steadfastness that can be learned with these kind of trials, Wisdom comes from going through these trials, and it's the kind of wisdom that you can only experience by, by these difficult, hard experiences. Pastors are called elders. It implies that they've reached maturity. They're not babes in the faith. And Paul is emphatic. He says, do not lay hands on anyone hastily. Time needs to be taken for the man to mature and also to observe whether the man is qualified. And this maturity, it's not just intellectual development. It requires the entirety of his of, of his of his manhood as a Christian. As one has observed, many who excelled in the academics of the seminary classroom, they fail in the hospital room, the boardroom, the living room, the counseling session, and the pulpit. And this leads me to just make the observation that in examining a man, we don't look necessarily at his, at his biological age, but rather at his spiritual age. This is what Paul is talking about. There are different factors that enter in. Some people have been converted at early age, and they've had much stability based upon their upbringing, and therefore would be ready to be a preacher in an earlier stage in their life than it might be so with somebody that was converted out of raw paganism and just came to the faith. And so there needs to be this qualification that he is not a new convert, not green behind the ears, as it's often put. And all of this implies that there's a certain amount of wisdom that he has learned through the difficult experiences and trials of life. And the reason Paul gives is very important. Lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. The Greek word that's translated puffed up, it originally refers to something filled with smoke. And in all three places where Paul uses this word, it's metaphorically used to refer to somebody's mind and being smoked up, you see, with, dis with conceit. Each case, he uses it in that kind of a sense. And he stresses this, this, this danger of blinding, eye-stinging smoke coming into a man's head to refer to his mind and judgment being enveloped with the smoke of conceit. It'll destroy him, he says. If you put him in the pulpit too quickly, if you give him too much prominence, if he's in the limelight and he begins to think that everybody's looking at him and everybody admires him, it's going to cloud his judgment. It's going to fill him up with pride. And worse yet, he will fall into the condemnation of the devil. That evil spirit that was hurled down from his high perch in heaven because of his pride and his rebellion. And then finally, and I'll just briefly mention this, the sixth place, Paul stresses that there must be a good testimony among the unconverted. 
Verse 7, we read, Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. In 1 Corinthians 5, in two places, Paul refers to those that are outside and the outsiders of the unconverted. So it appears he's using this word outside in the same way. And back in those days, as well as now, true believers were in the minority. And somebody might object that such persons have no right to, infor- to, to interfere in any way with the choice of, of an elder. Why should we let what people are saying out there affect the way which we would way we'd evaluate a man that we're considering for the ministry? You might say that. But it's exceedingly important that the character and reputation of the pastor be such that he has not a bad reputation among unbelievers. And whatever they have to say in opposition to the gospel, they must not have any legitimate reason to deride the gospel on the account of his lack of integrity, he doesn't pay his bills, his lack of truthfulness, they find him always prevaricating, or there's lack of purity that's gotten out in, in his reputation. And we can't expect the world to fought all over us. Woe unto you, Jesus says, if the world speaks well of you. And yet there should be no just grounds for the ungodly to censure the people that preach the holy word of God and thereby not only bring down that minister and his reputation, but the whole church. And so this concern seems uppermost of Paul's mind when he gives this reason also for a reputation of integrity, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. If you have an unsavory reputation in the community, if he's elevated to a position of prominence and authority, this is going to draw upon himself, to draw upon the church, the reproach and the derision of the world. This must not be the case in anyone that is set apart for the gospel ministry. The enemy's aim has always been to ruin the preacher and the leaders of the church and thereby to bring down the church. And when this happens, Satan and the hounds of hell, they rejoice. And we must not allow this to happen in the church. Well, let me just give you, thank you for your patience and wrapping this up. Just by way of conclusion, let me just underscore a basic principle of everything we've said in these three sermons. Beware of appointing anybody that doesn't meet these qualifications both now and ever. We must not sweep these qualifications under the rug. This is why we wait upon God concerning this. Only God knows the heart. And church needs to wait upon God for his wisdom and for these things to be evident in the life and the ministry of the one that's being considered. This is why we preach these searching sermons about the qualifications for the ministry. Beware of appointing anybody who doesn't meet these qualifications. And yet at the same time, beware of being stricter than God. There are degrees in these various qualifications, often, in which a man is more stronger in some area than another area. And yet there needs to be at least the essence of these things present in any man that is set apart for the gospel ministry. And then let me urge you, apart from those things that are the gift of Christ to the church, such as the gift of teaching, cultivate the graces that are stressed here Go through and read these qualifications in, the, in, in your devotions and say, Lord, if you want the pastor to be this way, why shouldn't I be that way as well? Make me to be holy. Make me to be one that you would use, and maybe not as a preacher, but you would use in the kingdom of God for the advancement of your word. And finally, pray for great effusions of grace, because as we read these things, we all have to say, who is sufficient for these things? Whoever feels that he's fully measured up in every way to these things. Who doesn't need to grow? Who doesn't need more of God's help in the way in which he preaches, in the way in which he lives, in the way in which he conducts himself with wisdom in the church of God? Pray for your pastors. Pray for the outpouring of his spirit, that we will grow in grace and grow in the abilities that God has given us to, lay, to labor in the church. We need the spirit's help. We can't do this on our own. Pray for us. And let's be committed to earnest prayer this coming Lord's Day as we wrestle with God and wait upon him concerning this urgent matter in the history of our church. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you that 
You give it to us, this outline of those kinds of things that you look for in a man of God that you would use in the ministry. And we pray, Lord, that you would make your mind to us and made known to us, not only in these coming days, but also in days to come, that there would be men that you would raise up both now and in decades to come that would fit the model that has been set before us here in these words that we have studied. We pray that where anything that I have said needs to be corrected or needs to be strengthened in any way, we pray, Lord, that your spirit would guide us in our understanding of what you would say to us through these words. We pray, Lord, that you'd be pleased to make us more and more like that perfect pastor, that perfect shepherd of the sheep, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us as pastors to follow his example. Help all of us to walk even as he walked. Enable us as a church not to bring mockery to the gospel in the world, but help us by the sweetness and the, the holiness of our conduct to be a savor of life unto life in, in, in many respects. Help us to be those that would commend the gospel as it is being preached to a lost and rebellious world. Have mercy upon this land that we live in. Have mercy upon the capital district of New York. Have mercy upon each one of us here in this room, we pray. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.